Hi and welcome to another Canny Conversations podcast powered by the Pathway Group. My name's Mark Wakeley and I'm one of the people who bring you these podcasts each week. In this series, Safraz Ali will be talking to some of the business people he's met and worked with in his 23 years at the heart of the West Midlands business community, as well as many of the businesses that are part of the Multicultural Apprenticeship Alliance. This week, Safraz is in conversation with Lucy Hunt, the National Programme Manager for Apprenticeships at NHS England. Safraz and Lucy discuss her career journey working in apprenticeships, first at colleges and then moving to her current role at NHS England. She talks about how NHS England has embraced apprenticeships, growing from under a thousand apprenticeships when she started in 2016 to over 150,000 now. Lucy discusses the challenges and opportunities of implementing apprenticeship programmes within such a large organisation like the NHS. They talk about increasing apprenticeship uptake across the NHS trusts, utilising the apprenticeship levy, developing health and specific apprenticeship standards, ensuring quality provision and some of the challenges around maths and English requirements. They also talk about Lucy's passion for bringing back the Business Administration Apprenticeship Standard. Lucy also shares advice for the government and the apprenticeship sector more broadly. She advocates for consistency, simplicity and putting learners first when developing policies and standards. So let's join the conversation. Hello, welcome to another Canny Conversations podcast. We're at Series 5 and today is a very, very special day because we have one of my role models, a champion for the sector, somebody who has supported us from day one, somebody who's there somebody who I look up to and I respect and admire and I'm getting starstruck already and I've already said that to to this lady so there's a clue there it is the one and only Lucy Hunt Lucy thank you so much for coming today thank you for having me my very first podcast and you're too kind with your comments but very much appreciated thank you so much 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 appreciated so it is it is absolutely genuine you are a champion you are recognized as a champion within the apprenticeship sector and you have the, the burden of being uh, somebody who's a go-to person within the sector. You are the voice of reason. You are the voice for many within the sector. And if I may say so, your interest is the interest of the sector as a whole. It's not self-interest in any way, shape or form. It's not about growing a particular organization or anything like that. It is for betterment of people or social mobility in its truest form and it's about encouraging growth encouraging people and getting the best out of people so yeah you're very very unique in terms of the role that you have very unique in terms of yourself and you've positioned yourself uh, where there is only one lucy hunt within that sector (laughs) and so thank you thank you for that so for for the audience if you can just tell us a little about some of the roles and the responsibilities uh, that you currently have. So we can, we start off with a little bit of introduction from yourself, please. Okay, so I am National Programme Manager for Apprenticeships at NHS England. That was formerly Health Education England. I've been in the role for around seven years now. Um, but prior to that, I first dipped my toe into the apprenticeship world in FE College. I have to give a shout out to Omar Khan. He basically had been my manager at Video Arts, a management training company. We've been there for a long time. I got made redundant on maternity leave, but that's a different story. And he sent me an email and he was like, come and work for me. I'm at Lewisham College. 
and you know, it's about apprenticeships. And I didn't have a clue what apprenticeships were. I didn't know, you know, about modern apprenticeships. I'd heard of MVQs. And it sounded too good to be true because back in the day when I first started, you know, they were fully funded programs. So he was like, you know, the sales targets are really low, but it's free. You know, you're going to have people eating out of your hand. And that was my first kind of dip into the world of apprenticeships. But I absolutely loved it. And it was, you know, from the very start about bettering people and helping people progress in their careers. Even though I worked for Lewisham and College, I managed to tie up all of the schools in Barking and Dagenham, which is where I live, in terms of the teaching assistant apprenticeship. And again, you know, I just basically got a mailing list, contacted them all, had meetings, and they were like, this is too good to be true. We can Hmm. get out employees a qualification upskill them in maths and english if we need to and it can be fully funded um so you know it was a game changer from there lewisham merged with southwark college and unfortunately we got a very poor ofsted which um had a real impact on terms of our business which was a shame because we were on the cusp of doing some really great things with some really big employers but then I got headhunted to go to Havering College, which was much closer to home. So it was kind of came at a really great time. I got to start my own team there. And again, I increased their apprenticeship income from four to 400% in the first year. So yeah, just a natural thing for me from my sales background, but then moving into kind of education, it just felt seamless and I excelled at it and I've really enjoyed it. And then when I was at Havering College, I worked with my local trust, um, which is BHRUT in Romford, and I set up the very first clinical apprenticeship programs in London in the NHS. The lady there that worked there at the time was Jenny Stone, who I since poached to come and work in my team. But basically, she said she saw the job at HEE and said, you know, you've done this for us. Why don't you do it for all the trusts in London? So I applied and I got the job. And yeah, haven't looked back. I worked in London for two years before I was promoted to national. And yeah, we've been instrumental in making sure that apprenticeships are embedded in the NHS. When I started in 2016, we had under a thousand apprentices and now we've got over 150,000. And that's from level two all the way up to level seven. And, you know, the best part of the job is when I actually get to meet the apprentices and see the life-changing things that happen into them through these opportunities. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Lucy. Much, much appreciate that. That was a whistle tour <laughs> of, of your career up to date, but there's a lot of also a lot of other things as well that we can bring into it as well. So firstly, in terms of the number of apprenticeships, 150,000, NHS England is no doubt one of the largest uh, providers of apprenticeship programs within the country. Uh, it's fully embraced apprenticeships in terms of its delivery. Talk to us about these 150,000. What's the makeup of that? What does that look like? And, and how does it work in, in such a large, esteemed, respected organisation? So, I mean, 150,000 sounds like a huge amount, but compared to the entire workforce, which is 1.3 million, it's still a small percentage. So we've still got a lot of work to do. It hasn't been without its challenges. When I first started going around to trust to tell them about the levy and that it wasn't optional and that they would be paying into this account you know we had some challenging conversations in the early days primarily because you know I could understand it but CEOs 
thought, well, this is money that's going to be taken away from frontline services. But we got over that and we actually said, you know, embrace the positives. This is the first time that you've got a ring-fenced pot of money to spend on staff development. And that's attracting new recruits, but also upskilling the workforce. And yeah, since once we've got that message out, I think it's really, really grown. It is still challenging in terms of, you know, we're massively under-resourced and we want to make sure that apprentices have a quality learning experience. So that comes down to kind of picking the right training providers and universities to work with, but also making sure that there's enough kind of mentorship and buddying in the workplace. We didn't close through the pandemic. We were actually busier than ever. And that was really interesting because the knee-jerk reaction was, you know, we're going to pause the learning. And we had to push back and say, actually, these apprentices on the front line are going to get off the job experience like no one's ever experienced before and actually it's just work with the providers to make sure we can keep them on program so you know it was a bit of a worry in terms of you know some of the nurses that basically we worked with IFA to um, get them an exemption from their EPA so they could get their pins and go straight into the workforce and you know hearing some of the horror stories coming out I did kind of feel responsible But, you know, when we did debrief with them and talk to them, you know, they knew the impact that they were making and they were glad to do so. And I think, you know, for me as well, from those first apprentices that we did at BHRUT, they then progressed on to be the first cohort of registered nurses. And, you know, meeting those, it was nine women, one man, but meeting those 10 apprentices was phenomenal because they were talking about, you know, the confidence it had given them. They were all local and so it was a case of, you know, their employer had invested in them so that was going to help with retention. So, you know, I think we've got some really great case studies of the power of apprenticeships and how it is helping kind of change the culture in the NHS. I mean, obviously you mentioned that NHS is one of the biggest employers as well. I mean, you you know, 1.3 million is no mean feat. I mean, it is a big, very big organisation. The fact that you've got 150,000 you know, which is still a significant number within apprenticeships. You know, what's what's the ambition? You know, how how are apprenticeships seen within within the organisation? I mean, you know, we've still got people who you know looking at traditional degrees, that aspect of it, and how does recruitment work within the NHS England? So the NHS Long Term Workforce Plan yeah. was published recently, um, and we're really really pleased that we managed to get apprenticeships into almost every chapter and every profession. So there's still a lot to do. There is a growth ambition. At the moment, I think it's 7% of clinical staff are on apprenticeships and they want that to be 22% by 2026. So, you know, that's a big growth area. So we need to make sure that we've got capacity in terms of providers. Mm. But some of the challenges are, you know, one, everyone thinks we're one NHS and I wish we were, but I work with 240-odd very different individual levy paying trusts. And then you've got to remember all of our SMEs in terms of primary care, GP practices, pharmacists. So what works for the levy payers might not necessarily work for the SMEs. So it's always a balancing act, making sure that we can make sure that the apprenticeships are successful. We're really doing a lot in terms of raising the parity of esteem. I think the message is getting through. I think a lot of the work that we're doing with UCAS is going to help with that in the future. But it is still a challenge. I think access to careers advice and guidance is still a huge blocker in terms of young people. I know from my 16-year-old, she has basically been indoctrinated into the cult of university. And even doing what I do, she's just like, no, I want to do the proper degree. And it's just really frustrating. In fact, you know, she's just started her A-levels, but after her GCSEs, 
being me, I said, you know, apply for an apprenticeship, just keep your options open because she'd applied for like six, six forms, but doesn't know what she wants to do, still doesn't know what she wants to do, which at 16 is understandable. But I said, you know, just go through the process. I think it'd be a good experience for you. And she ended up actually getting offered an apprenticeship. It was a level four data one, a really, really great opportunity. And she went into school and her head teacher said, oh, no, 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 Summer, you're far too clever for that. And I think that just hits the crux of the problem in terms of apprenticeships are still seen as the poor relation. And actually, I think, you know, they can be harder. You're going to be working full time and doing a qualification. It's no mean feat. And I don't think that should be kind of underestimated. I think we need to attract more fresh talent into the NHS. And I think that's still a big challenge for us. We're not seen as kind of sexy. Um, You know, we've got huge growth areas in terms of data, AI, cyber, all of that. But you talk to young people and they'll be thinking of kind of Microsoft and Google. They wouldn't necessarily think of the NHS. So I think we still need to do a lot more about kind of making us an employer of choice for young people. Uh, Lucy, you touched on the levy and when the levy was introduced, uh, the reforms took place. You had to go and uh, talk to the leaders within the organisation and talk about the impact and talk a little bit about some of the opportunities that the levy presented. I mean, obviously, being uh, NHS is a very large employer. I mean, I mean, the number, some of the numbers are 200 million plus in terms of going into the pot. I think it's probably one of the biggest uh, in terms of paying into the levy. You know, how does that work and what are the current sort of opportunities, the challenges? How is the levy sort of fitting in within the organisation? And a lot of organisations naturally are now looking at their supply chain, potentially transferring, looking at some of the opportunities to actually make the most of the levy. So talk to us a little bit about some of some of those sort of opportunities and challenges. Yeah, so, um, you know, initially our levy spend was quite slow because we had to do procurement. We had to kind of raise the profile and make people understand really what the apprenticeships were. But now we're on track potentially to be overcommitted on our levy next financial Mm. year because, you know, it's really growing. I think still, you know, we do support primary care in terms of levy transfers. We have got the ambulance services, for example, London Ambulance in particular. They've exceeded their levy pot every year since the start and they receive transfers in from other sectors in terms of like corporate social responsibility. So that's really good that people want to support the NHS in terms of achieving their apprenticeship numbers. You know, we hear a lot in the press about all these millions of unspent levy, but I don't think that's the case, certainly within the NHS. You know, we do profile the spend and support with levy transfers as well into kind of primary care and into social care as well. But we're definitely on track to kind of overcommit And that's even before we launched the medical doctor, which we know there's going to be a huge interest in when that starts in 2024. But um, I think it's been, you know, it's been a journey. And I think, you know, we really have worked with trusts. When we first started, kind of the apprenticeships were tagged onto someone else in HROD's day job. And we had to really make sure that they understood that, you know, it is a full time job. And some of these apprenticeship leads now in trusts. You know, the trust could employ 20,000 people and you might have one, maybe two, maybe a small team in terms of the apprenticeship. So that's a big responsibility, mm. making sure that people know what's available, that you're using them to recruit new staff, but also to upskill existing staff. So, you know, it is hectic. There's a lot to do. But we do think it is growing really well. You know, we've got 
a great bunch of dedicated people in trust now that are kind of flying the flag and making sure that people can embrace apprenticeships when they need to. Uh, again, from from general research, when I'm looking into this, I mean, I'm looking at the sort of job roles within the within the NHS, and the list just goes on and on and on in terms of how many job roles. I mean, some of them, you know, sort of really technical titles and so forth. And I'm thinking, is there an apprenticeship? For each of those, how many apprenticeships you know are there, and is there a plan in terms of trying to cover some of those areas that are that are there? How does that work? You know, what's the connectivity for that? Because it is a mammoth of a task, just in terms of just the technical job roles, and as yeah. I said, you know, just it's just no, very complicated. So there are over three hundred and fifty different job roles in the NHS. Uh, NHS England, we've been involved, and I think we're up to 99 now, developing health-specific trailblazer standards. So they are apprenticeship standards that are specific to health. 99, yeah. But we've also been involved in, obviously, a lot of the generic ones in terms of leadership management and things like that. So not quite at the stage where there's an apprenticeship for every different job role, but I think we've definitely got enough of breadth that we can certainly cover a big part of that. And yeah, I mean, I think from day one, we had probably six in use. And last year, as I said, we were up to kind of 99 different standards being used. And that's from level two all the way up to level seven. So apart from apprenticeships, I mean, if you think about upskilling and uh, some of the the, the staff that you've got, I mean, are there other opportunities and other things that the the NHS England looks at in terms of upskilling their staff? Definitely. So I think a huge thing for us in terms of meeting any of the potential targets in the long-term plan is going to be our pipeline. So that will include, obviously, work experience, volunteering, and T-levels. The juries, it's a mixed bag on T-levels. I hear very different things. I do think it depends on where they are in the country and how good the college they're working with is. So I still think it's a mixed bag. But um, I think, you know, that's really exciting in terms of another entry route if people do want to do a vocational T-level and then potentially progress into an apprenticeship. But, you know, work experience and volunteering is a really, really important first step for us for people to kind of, which one of those 350 job roles are they interested in? It's really hard for people to decide. And we're always crying out for people to do, you know, volunteering and get that exposure. You know, traineeships, the removal of that, I think was a huge blow because we were just beginning to kind of utilize that and we had some real success stories particularly in the midlands and you know i think it's quite disappointing now how they've kind of devolved the funding for that because as a national employer it's really a challenge we would like to work with a provider that's got national funding so i do think that was kind of a a misstep on dfe's part Mm. i don't know if they gave it time to embed but Mm. yeah i think in terms of widening participation and being able to attract people, they were a really good stepping stone into work. And I think, you know, it's left a real gap. We know that there's not very many level two apprenticeships. And, you know, in terms of social mobility, if people haven't got their maths and English, that level three is just a step too far. So I do think needs to, more needs to be done at the lower levels to encourage people into work. I mean, previously I've heard you talk about maths and English and, and offering maths and English qualifications within that. Is that still on the sort of plan and the long-term plan that you mentioned. Within. Yeah, so we will be going out to tender again shortly. But, yeah, we've funded provision for all NHS trusts for maths and English resources for quite a while now. We work with BKSB and Open Awards. And that was purely because we were getting a lot of feedback from trusts that they needed to be able to do initial assessments to understand where the start of the journey was for their learners. Mm. And particularly where we have a lot of overseas learners who might not necessarily have their certificates, we want to understand where they are and what support they need and where they can be signposted to. And I think, you know, another challenge is realistically that 
working full time, doing a level five, level six apprenticeship and trying to do your maths and English is a huge ask. So where possible, we try to get them to do that before they start the apprenticeship just to free it up and mean that they've got that out of the way. Because we do have, if that doesn't happen, we've got a lot of challenges. I actually got an email yesterday, a young lady doing her level three senior healthcare support worker. She's passed her English. She's got her diploma. She's failed her maths functional skills six times. And they're at the end of their tether now because she's brilliant at her job. She's occupationally competent, but she can't officially achieve the apprenticeship until she passes this maths. And I think... The more it's gone on, obviously she's got anxiety and a, probably a phobia about it now. And her employer is just so frustrated because, yeah. you know, she's brilliant at her job. They want her to progress and not being able to work out which bus will get you to the town centre quick. You know, I it's think just, if yeah. it was contextualised, it would be a lot more easier for people to do. It's going to be fit for purpose, as you yeah. said. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So, I mean, any any sort of, I mean, I'm going to get you to sort of look at or give advice if we can, just uh, or suggestions in terms of other providers out there. I mean, there's a lot of providers who you know, have these issues of how do you scale up an apprenticeship program? Again, you know, you, you spoke about how you, how the NHS England have done it. You know, some of the barriers, some of the obstacles, the mindsets, uh, as well as the, the execution of it. So there are some people when you're talking to them in this in this uh, in terms of generally, they talk about the difficulties with regard to say out of twenty percent of the job training, the difficulties with regard to monitoring, the difficulties in terms of well our sector is different, we you know, our people don't stake and transient people and also those sort of conversations. So what sort of suggestions, advice would you suggest to somebody who is looking at apprenticeships and maybe has a slightly not so positive view on, on apprenticeships? Yeah, so I have plenty of those conversations. <laughs> I mean in terms of the twenty percent off the job, I do have to say kind of stop moaning because for nursing, it actually equates to 60% of the job to meet the professional registration requirements. So if we can manage to make it work with 60% of the job, I'm sure 20%. But I think it comes down to working with good providers. And I think my challenge has been that where we've been in this game for you know seven, eight years now, when providers do grow, the quality tends to dip. And that really, really is a bugbear of mine because I think in the NHS, we do talk, we do say, you know, who's good for this standard, who's who's doing great stuff in our region. And I do think that sometimes providers just say yes, 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 when they haven't got the capacity. And I would, you know, my message would be, I'd much rather you say no, but we can do it in three months when we make sure we're fully resourced rather than say yes and kind of overpromise and underdeliver. And that happens a lot in the NHS and, you know, NHS England do have to intervene. You know, there are some unscrupulous providers, but there are also a lot of really, really dedicated providers working in very challenging times, you know, in a cost of living crisis, getting access to the specialist staff that we need for some of our programs is a real challenge as well. And realistically, you know, we try to support people that are, you know, coming up to retirement and maybe want to do a bit of assessing to give back. But realistically, you're a nurse, you've been on your feet for 40 years. Do you really want to go back to assessing? (laughs) So it, it is a challenge. And, you know, we do find that providers, staff get poached because there is such high demand and we can understand that. But I just think it is a real concern in the sector that obviously people need to have decent salaries to survive. And I mean, with all of the kind of providers that have gone under recently, it's been a real challenge for us because we were working with a lot of those and then having to find homes for the new apprentices. It really just damages the apprenticeship brand. And I I actually met with this team in DfE that I didn't even know existed. So it's their provider exit team. So suddenly we've become very good friends because of what's been happening this year. 
And they said, you know, what can we do to avoid this? And I just, you know, I think, think about the consequences of your actions. If you're a provider that had a traineeship contract, that had a HGV contract, that had AEB, and suddenly they're all withdrawn, I don't understand what they think is going to happen. Of course, people are going to go to the wall. So, you know, it's a really difficult time at the moment. And I think we should be doing as much as we can to kind of support providers and recognising that, you know, a lot of them do deliver really good quality. And um, it's just very challenging at the moment. I mean, one of the other things that you've been absolutely sort of fighting the cause of is the business administration <laughs> conversation. I mean, wherever I've, I've seen you yourself, you've always, uh, rightly so, taken up the, the mantle of, of that particular qualification. So talk to us about some of the background. What is the issue and where are we now with, with regard to business admin? So I am really, really passionate about this. And this goes back to my college days, because when I was at the college, we would have people on the framework, on the level two framework, in practically every department in the college. And these were young people that just really needed that foot in the door. And many of them have gone on to huge, bigger and better things because of that stepping stone. And I think since the removal, particularly in the NHS, we've not been able to do a lot of that widening participation work that we like to do. I know from working with the Trailblazer Chair, they're a local authority and they used to employ their care leavers every year on the framework and they've not been able to do that. I just think, you know, to be honest, I'm never going to stop going on about it. I think it's a travesty. If it's truly an employer-led system, then they should listen to the biggest employer in the country. I've got over 100 different employers of all sizes from all sectors involved at the moment, and they're really, really passionate. And I think we know that mass and English attainment is a huge issue in this country. And yes, we've got a level three business admin standard, but it's not entry level. And a lot of the roles in the NHS are entry level. And if you haven't got your mass and English, then the level three is just that step too far. And, you know, for me as well, I do volunteer with the Careers and Enterprise Company. So I work with schools in my local borough. So it's Barkham and Dagenham, one of the most deprived boroughs. And I'd really like DfE, the Institute, to come out and meet the kids in those schools because already in year seven, they're being predicted that they're not going to get their maths and English. So what do you do when they're 11, 12? Consign them to the scrap heap because they're not going to be able to pass or get a five or above or whatever it is these days in maths and English, you know, it's tragic. When I actually meet these young people, they've got so much that they want to give and actually are being consigned to the scrappy but year seven because they're already on a trajectory where they're not going to pass. Mm. It was funny because we went to an event in Barkin and Dagenham when my daughter got her GCSEs. So that was a whole different, you know, it's the numbers thing and she just got herself so stressed out. So we picked up the results and she's crying her eyes out. And I'm like, can I see? Is this good? Is this bad? And she got nines, eights and two sevens. And she was crying about the sevens. And, you know, I think that's appalling because since when is an A not outstanding? You know, now we've got the A star, A star, star. But in my day, an A was phenomenal. But it was an eye-opener for her when the local mayor said that they were celebrating a record 53% achievement of C or above in the borough. And she looked at me and then she was like, but then that means mum 48% didn't achieve? And she was like, I was like, yeah, this is what I'm talking about. And I think that was an eye-opener for her because as tough as it had been, she thought that, you know, people yeah. would pass. But actually... In our borough, 48% didn't achieve a C or above. So what's going to happen to them? They're going to be stuck in college, 
retake in until they're too old to be funded. But if there's a level two apprenticeship, potentially if vocational learning is more the right path for them, they could get into work and get a foot in the door and progress. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. In, in terms of, again, the business administration qualification, I mean, it is, as you said, social mobility from a perspective. It is one of the go-to stablemate or qualifications. Why is this such an issue in terms of not bringing that on board? I mean, obviously, people talk about customer service being there, but it's not the same thing being customer service. It's not the same. So, and, we, so, yeah. and we really had challenges in the NHS because a lot of our admin functions are back office so there's not patient facing they're not people facing so yep you can kind of spin it for internal customers but then when they get to epa it's been really challenging i don't know what the blockers are you know we're still going we've got support from ruth formerly at sainsbury's she's been phenomenal rob watson LabCorp, he's been amazing they've got huge kind of trailblazer experience and even they are seeing that this standard has been treated differently to any other standard that they've been involved in. I think keep moving the goalposts. I don't care about being controversial anymore because it's been six years of my life and it's frustrating because I know that if we could get this approved, that there would be huge numbers on it. And I think maybe that could be part of the problem is that if the forecasts mm. about the levy already mm. being overspent potentially, yeah. is that it would be a big volume standard. But I don't know. I just... I wish we could have transparency. If if they said that was the case, then I wouldn't accept it. But at least we'd know what we're dealing with because if it's an employer-led system, I've got 100 very passionate employers who all want this standard to be developed. Yeah. No, I understand that. I mean, as I said, you know, if you know the reasons behind it, at least you've got some element of coming up with some solutions or some ideas. Mm. This way, you, it's just a stalemate. It's just like... You, know, you, you can't seem to get any further. No. So the latest is that the level three is very overdue to be updating and we are pleading with IFATE to let us look at the level two in conjunction with the level three. So previously when the level three was developed, the previous chair, he believed that the level two was going to follow and then that was blocked. But as it stands, you know, some of the pushback and feedback we've had is that there's too much overlap between a potential level two and a level three. But if we look at the two standards in tandem, then we can hopefully eliminate that and make sure that the level two is a stepping stone for them to progress into the level three. Okay, okay. I mean, uh, Lucy, at the beginning, we, we spoke about uh, sort of a, a bit of a description about NHS England, and you mentioned all of these trusts that you're working with, and, and then also the SMEs, all the sort of supply chain that, that you have. Let's touch a little bit about that, because obviously to get a representation, to get understanding, to get strategic alliances, partnerships, get everybody on the same page, that's not sometimes, is can be a very difficult it is a difficult task. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about some of the some of the good practices out there, some of the best practices. How do all these trusts get together, and how what's that sort of? How does that work? So that's a really good question because when I first started in London. I just naively assumed that all the trusts would be connected, they'd all be talking to each other, they'd be sharing best practice. And this was 2017 and it wasn't happening. So we set up, I set up kind of London network meetings um, and would get the apprentice leads together. And that was really the beginning of the journey. We then replicated it across the seven regions in, so NHS England work across seven regions so we then had dedicated relationship managers in each of the seven regions who were kind of that operational support but would make sure that trust got together I mean this is going back but when I first started they were having huge issues with a provider that's no more and I'd go to one trust and they were like oh you know 
they're not seeing the learners. I can never get a response. And then I'd go to the next trust and they would be there signing up 100 new learners. And I was like, don't you guys talk to each other? So I think that's something that we've definitely done is make sure that we do kind of speak to each other, share best practice, what's working, what's the challenges. As I said before, you know, we do share feedback about providers. So, you know, there's nowhere to hide if, if a provider is kind of over-promising and under-delivering, then we know about it. And I think as well, you know, we've had huge challenges in terms of Ofsted and potentially when people are taken off the register, because we do have such big numbers, it's a really difficult place to try and find them new homes and new providers to pick them up. And I think that's one of the positives that we have in being that intermediary in NHS England is that we can kind of harness the buying power. I would imagine it's much more challenging for smaller organisations that don't have that when things do go wrong. I'm going to touch a little, I mean, change tack a little bit. I mean, not, not too much, but still on the same topic. And then we'll go a little bit further in terms of your career journey, which, uh, you know, I want to delve into. Uh, in terms of this new team that the DFE have, have created in terms of exit, and you have said uh, it's been a tough, turbulent time for the sector, for independent training providers, uh, for colleges. I mean, you touched on it right at the beginning. Colleges have not had it easy as well. Uh, so people talk about independent training providers, but colleges are very tough. There has been a fair amount of mergers within the sector and, and a lot of college names that 10 years ago that we, we used to sort of love and remember and, and talk about, they're all gone and you've got new super colleges now and you've got super institutions and so forth. And and then again, you, you know, you've said the larger an organization goes, sometimes they lose touch with some of what made them great and what distinguished them. And then this sector, the, the year that we, we've just gone through, the changes and very quick sort of turbulent changes in terms of training shapes, in terms of the AEB, some of the other stuff that, that's gone out there, uh, you know, creates a fairly volatile environment. And then mm-hmm. when you're there, you know, building a supply chain, you're looking and planning consistency, you know, you've got a long-term plan that you're working towards. And with the resources, and I know you touched on it sometimes, you know, maybe a small team, but with the resources, the brand that you've got, you're seeing that. What advice would you give to government, DFE? What advice would you give to people who potentially are looking at this skills and employability sector? It's so important for for us all to get it right. And what thoughts do you have in terms of why are we in this place that we're in? So, so there's a lot there. Sorry. Yeah, no, yeah. so um, advice for DFE and, you know, the powers that be is stop tinkering. You know, I think there's... A lot of rumours and rumblings this week about their plans in terms of potentially Treasury want to stop funding for the Level 7 senior leader. They're potentially talking about putting age limits in for degree apprenticeships and, you know, additional barriers. We don't need any more barriers. You know, the system is difficult enough as it is to navigate. I think the NHS are lucky that they've got NHS England helping them kind of navigate the technical education landscape because it is very complicated. It's not straightforward. And... I think, you know, on the whole, the levy has been a positive thing for us. Yes, there's been a decline in the number of apprenticeships for young people, and I think that is a challenge, but I think there's also a direct correlation between the lack of entry-level apprenticeship standards that maybe they could look at. But, you know, the announcement around the new A-level qualification and the removal of, you know, we don't need all of that. If you're a parent, are you going to be putting your child onto a T-level now, knowing that they're going to be potentially going in the next 10 years? It's like, it's just, you know, we don't need the confusion. We want it simplified. In the NHS, you know, we do work predominantly with independent training providers because we have found that they are a lot more flexible 
I do think colleges on the whole, and you know, my background is colleges, they are missing a trick because often the NHS would be the biggest employer in whatever region that they're in, but they don't have that same flexibility that ITPs offer. And also, yeah, I just think they do have their own challenges and we know kind of recruiting staff, retaining staff in either is a massive challenge. But ITPs, I think it's a lot harder because they haven't got the estates and the overheads and all of that infrastructure that colleges do. So, you know, if they do lose a contract in an ITP, then that's job straight away, isn't it? And I think that's something that government need to understand that people aren't in this to make huge amounts of money. People are in this to help better people's lives and... They need to make sure it's funded more, you know, robustly and that it's not such a precarious place to be. Absolutely. I mean, talking about bettering people's lives, I mean, you, you know, again, another thing that I would say. That's where we're going to have to leave the conversation till next time. Thank you to Lucy Hunt, National Programme Manager for Apprenticeships at NHS England for her time and insight. Next week, you'll be able to hear the second half of that conversation between Safraz and Lucy. So if you don't want to miss that, then remember to subscribe or follow us. If you're new to the podcast, let me tell you there are already 78 other Canny Conversation podcast episodes out there. And you can listen to all those past episodes by searching for Canny Conversations on your preferred podcast platform. Or go to 1386audio.com forward slash have a listen. We'd also love it if you could review, subscribe or follow the podcast. And please tell your friends and colleagues about us. If you'd like to know more, then go to cannyconversationspodcast.co.uk or go to Safraz's website. That's safraz.co.uk. Safraz has also written a series of easy-to-follow business books, Canny Bites. And these are available from cannybites.co.uk forward slash read the book. As I said, we'll be back next week with the second half of Safraz Ali's conversation with Lucy Hunt, National Programme Manager for Apprenticeships at NHS England. So until then, we hope you have a good week. This is a 1386 audio production. 